This episode of Futuropolis is sponsored by Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear. Go to warbyparker.com future and get a free three-day shipping on your new pair. That's warbyparker.com future. Cars are dangerous machines. We use them every day, so we don't really think about the risks or watch the road as closely as we should. In 2013, car accidents killed more than 32,000 Americans and injured 2.3 million. 16% of these crashes involved distracted driving, but cell phones aren't going anywhere. The obvious solution? Get rid of the drivers. I'm Lindsay Cradwell, And I'm Brianna Draxler. This is Popular Science's Futuropolis, a new podcast about the world of tomorrow. In this episode, we're talking about cars that drive themselves. The self-driving car has been 20 years away ever since the 1930s. That's Bryant Walker-Smith, assistant professor of law at South Carolina University. He's an expert on the legal and ethical implications of self-driving vehicles. He points out that autonomous cars have been promised to us since, well, forever. Popular science had some very optimistic predictions in an article from 1967. You twirl a dial until you see 5th Street appear in a small window. Seconds later, as your car enters the main guideway at exactly 60 miles per hour, you open the paper and begin scanning the news. The system you're riding? Herbmobile. The year? 1985. Or perhaps sooner. Well, 1985 has obviously come and gone. And while everyone from Ford to Google is working on self-driving cars, we're still waiting. That's because we have to get over a few hurdles. Or roadblocks, if you will. Uh. Missy Cummings is the director of Duke's Humans and Autonomy Lab. She says the current sensors on autonomous vehicles just can't deal with the bad weather. If there's any kind of precipitation in the environment, rain, snow, uh, the sensors typically do very bad in those kinds of conditions. So we still have to get the technology up to snuff. And get people to trust cars with their private data, not to mention their lives. Because self-driving cars are coming. We need them. So people often ask me, you know, are you concerned about self-driving cars? And I say, yes, I am concerned that there could be safety problems. But I'm terrified about today's cars driven by today's drivers. And that makes sense. Drivers are distracted. Right now, at this very moment, more than 600,000 Americans are texting or messing with their phones while they're behind the wheel. It's no wonder we get in so many accidents. Autonomous cars have one job. One job. Just one job. They don't get distracted. On top of that, they're more fuel efficient and they help those who can't drive get around, like people who are blind or elderly. As self-driving cars start sharing the highway, they're going to change our world in unexpected ways. Back in 1961, popular science dreamed about how self-driving cars could free up drivers to relax. The Airmobile is the only simple, safe, and economical vehicle for completely automatic operations. A punched tape would guide the car from coast to coast with a sleeping or reading driver. We're not so sure about the punch tape. But the napping passenger is spot on, according to Bryant Walker-Smith. He explains that autonomous cars could carry us in one of two different directions. On one, you say, great, now I have a car that I can sleep in. So I'm going to just relocate my office to it. I'm going to put a bed in there. Heck, I'll put an exercise bike. The other extreme is to say, I don't need to own a car anymore. 
because I can walk out of my door and within a minute have a shared robo-taxi pull up and take me to wherever I go. Door number one means everyone will still own their own cars. Those cars will just look and function unlike anything on the road today. Door number two will mean cars move into the public domain. No more looking for parking spaces, no more waiting for buses. Either route could totally change the way car-obsessed Americans see their vehicles. Right now, they represent freedom, independence, the open road. But they also represent traffic jams, air pollution, and the daily grind of suburban commutes. Here's Missy again. You can imagine a time in the future where if you live in and around a big city, it will be mandatory for you to engage the robotic component of your car, meaning you, you know, the, the computer will take over, but that you might be able to disengage it to drive on country roads. Or you can even imagine a time in the future where we're having like national parks for hiking. You might just have national parks for driving where you just get to drive your car and you don't have to worry about the headaches that would go with day-to-day driving on the road. And that's just the beginning. Here to talk with us about what a future with self-driving cars might look like is futurist Glenn Heemstra. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Futuropolis is sponsored by Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear. That concept? New glasses should not cost as much as a driverless car. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy, risk-free, and most of all, enjoyable. Prescription glasses start at $95, including lenses with anti-reflective and anti-glare coating. I realized that I needed glasses when I couldn't see what was in front of me when I was driving in my car. So one of the first pairs of glasses I got was at Warby Parker. It was super easy and kind of great that I didn't have to go and try everything on in front of a lot of people and have them watch me. Is that weird? And with Warby Parker's home try-on program, five pairs of glasses will be shipped to you to try on in the comfort of your own home. Keep the frames for five days before sending them back with no obligation to purchase. Once you place an order, you'll have your new glasses within 10 business days. And for every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker donates a pair to someone in need. Go to warbyparker.com future to choose your five free home try-on frames. Send the frames back, choose your favorite pair, and order you'll get free three-day shipping on your final frame choice. Again, go to warbyparker.com future and get free three-day shipping on your final frame choice. And now, back to the show. Yes, my name is Glenn Heemstra. I am the founder and CEO of Futurist.com, a boutique consulting and futurist company. Okay. So as a futurist, then, when did self-driving cars come into the picture? Well, interestingly enough, they've been around forever. I remember seeing a a Disney film made in 1957 that imagined self-driving cars. And what sort of timeline are we looking at? How long until everyone is cruising around reading the newspaper in their car? It will be a while, even though I think that it might come sooner than a lot of people expect. At the same time, of course, we know that the average car lasts 11 or 12 years, and so there is at least a decade and a half or two-decade transition period before you would have a high percentage of self-driving cars on the roads. But it could be spurred by certain other developments. What kind of developments do you see egging that on? The primary additional development, I, I think, would be around traffic safety and insurance company demands. 
And one estimate that is pretty well accepted is, is that self-driving vehicles would be so safe, particularly if they could communicate with the other vehicles, that the accident rate could be dropped by 90%. And if the early experience with self-driving cars, and in fact the Google experiment sort of bears this out, is that in fact the accident rate would drop that far, then there would become a sort of social and political pressure to speed the adoption up, as well as the insurance industry becoming insistent on people owning self-driving cars because they would be safer and while you would still have to insure, insure them for liability reasons, the insurance companies would know they would pay out less, and so they might become a, quite a big lobby in asking for a speed-up of the adoption of self-driving cars. So there are both social factors and cost or insurance factors that I, that I think could push it along. Absolutely. I mean, they sound safer. They sound more efficient, more economical. So I guess if we look at the personal level then, if people aren't driving while they're in their cars, what do you think they're going to be doing? Well, the primary thing that people would be doing would probably be being productive. And then, then of course, there would, there would be a lot of social activity around social networks and literally, literally perhaps even using our phones to make telephone calls. You never know. So without steering wheels, brakes, any of those things we normally assume are going to be on the interior of a car, what else do you think it will be imagined for, for those interiors? One of the biggest question marks, and to some extent one could even say controversies about the future of driverless cars is, should the future be driver assist so that the car would look pretty much like today's interiors, steering wheels, brakes, gas pedals, then when you get on on certain roads, freeways, for example, the car would drive itself, and then elsewhere it would assist you or or expect you to take over. That's one model. The Google people believe that the better option is a fully autonomous, completely self-driving car, which in fact could theoretically then do away with steering wheels and, and, you know, internal brakes and so on. And then you really could reinvent the inside to be more like a mini office or more like a mini living room, comfortable seats that can face each other or face in various directions and multiple screens to use. The the reason, by the way, that Google believes in a fully autonomous car is that a driver-assisted car would perhaps be more dangerous in that Engineering would expect the human driver to take over when necessary, but human drivers would become more and more inattentive because most of the time the driving would work just fine. And so when they're needed in emergency would probably be the very time when they're not paying any attention at all. So, so if and when we get to that point where they're fully autonomous, what are the cars going to do when the people get out? Two or three things. Number one, if you think of uh, in-city driving, cars will probably be relatively small. MIT has, has a, a city car project, which is a, a small two-passenger car, not necessarily aimed to be self-driving, but which is an electric car that captures electricity inductively from magnetic induction coils in the street so that it could pull into a parking space and get charged up. And so one of the things that cars would do in cities would be you would get out of the car the car would go back on the street and just start circulating, kind of like an Uber driver does today, waiting for a call from somebody on a smartphone to call it up and say, I need a ride from here to there. And the nearest car would pull over and and off you'd go. And when that many cars are not needed, they they would pull into some kind of a a parking garage where they could be charged up. Uh, Although one one of the expectations is if you switch to that kind of a system, you could 
significantly decrease the need for parking spaces in cities. Uh, for for between cities driving, you know, that's probably going to be a larger vehicle. I don't know whether those are then be owned by rental companies or by individuals, and those will be you know probably housed in your, in your home uh, garage, kind of like a Tesla today. And will cars eventually be able to run errands for us, so we don't even have to go down to the pharmacy? You know, that, that, that really makes good sense. If you think about small package delivery, for example, one experiment going on is, is the use of Amazon drones. If you think of, of the typical UPS delivery, it would make sense that, that, that you could send the car to a location and some person or some machine there could, could load a package into the car and send it back to you. That obviously is further out because all kinds of logistical things would have to get put together. But that does make a lot of sense. How will this transform our highways and our landscapes? It, number one, will decrease the need, perhaps even virtually eliminate the need to build more roads in the future because driverless cars are at least theoretically capable of driving closer together, kind of in platoon, so that they're literally a few feet apart like NASCAR race cars, and driving at relatively high speed in that configuration so that you could put more cars on the road. In a, in a given space of road, you could accommodate more cars. Second, you would need fewer cars to move everybody around if you move to a, a model where not everybody owns a car, but you just use a car when you need it. it. It does raise an interesting question about the future then of public transit. It could potentially have an impact on, on bus transit because bus transit is designed to sort of be a substitute car in that it'll, it'll take you a fairly short distance in, in a city uh, and then I think it would have very little impact on, on light rail or, or subway systems and so on. So where are the places that are really going to see the impact of this shift? Yeah, I, I would think it would be cities that have less developed uh, transit systems, so, so not the Washington, D.C.s and not the New Yorks, but more, more like the Seattles, where I'm from, where, where we have a very limited light rail system, no subway, and, and most of public transit is surface buses. And then um, the, other, the other impact that, that I do want to mention is that it will eventually impact uh, private car ownership. Do you think that people will not have cars or just that those cars will be very different looking than what they are today? Uh, I think that, that in the long run, and here we're probably talking more like a 40 to 50 year time period. So, you know, like there, there is the pen- potential at least that by 2050-ish or so, owning a car will be analogous to owning a horse today. If you go back 100 years, uh, one-fourth of the nation's farmland in the United States was devoted to feeding horses because that's how everybody got around. Ten years later, everybody had a car. I mean, it was a very fast transition. And very rapidly, almost everybody stopped owning horses. Even today, a few people still own horses, and if you're a wealthy person, you might own a whole collection of horses. And you take them out on the weekend, and you go on rides. And, uh, you know, big crowds like to go to stadiums and watch horses race. And we'll still like to go to stadiums and watch cars race with human drivers in them. But the, the average person will see no need to, to own an automobile. They will just call one up when, when they need. So then the car companies would, would then start uh, selling mostly to leasing companies or to the Ubers of the world. And it seems like the car is pretty closely tied to the American identity, this idea of freedom. How do you think that will change? Will we have different representations than cars? Yes, I, I do. I mean, I, and I think it still will will be to some degree. Even if you, instead of getting in my car and driving it from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia, I 
jump on my phone and I call Hertz and a Hertz driverless car pulls up to my doorstep and I get in and then it drives me to Philadelphia, I'll probably actually feel pretty free. I'll feel pretty wealthy, actually, because it'll be like being chauffeured everywhere. But the other thing that's happening is the surveys of, uh, of younger people today are illustrating, you know, I'm of a generation that, that grew up pre-cell phone, you know, the height of the automobile generation. So everybody dreamed of getting a car as, as soon as you could, preferably when you were still in high school. And certainly by the, by the time you were going to college, you wanted to have a car because it gave you freedom to, to get out of the house and to get away from parents and to go see your friends and to interact with your friends. If you didn't have that, the only thing you could do would be to get on the one house or the one phone in, on the wall in the house and call your friends while everybody listened. You know, and so cars were a really big deal for freedom. But now, you know, it's really much more about social media and phones and surveys of, of young people claim that, that if given a choice, young people would rather have a smartphone than an automobile. Uh, I don't know if that's how true that really is, but th- that's what the surveys say. Well, it's a different, a different kind of freedom. It's a different kind of freedom. So the other thing I associate with cars and freedom is this classic American road trip. But that doesn't seem to fit in any of the scenarios you're describing. What is it going to look like to drive across the country in the future? That, I think that what it will look like driving around the country in the future, I think, is a really interesting question. I mean, w- one possibility is, you know, rental companies, for example, would maintain a fleet of, of cars that can be driven by humans so that when you want to drive cross-country, you, you rent one of those and it's still cheaper than, than owning your own car. So are you going to be one of the early adopters when autonomous cars hit the roads? Yes, uh, and here, here's how now. Um, autonomous cars right now are estimated to add, you know, maybe another $10,000 that's on the low end to the cost of a car. So if the idea is that everybody's going to buy one, that's, that isn't going to go so well. But if, if um, a car service, whether it's a rental company or, or, or an Uber or an Uber knockoff, uh, is, is first of all allowed to and then uh, has driverless cars, uh, I would be, just as I am now, an early adopter of using Uber in every city just about to go to uh, if I, I want to see if they have it and, and how it's going. Um, I would be a, an early user uh, of that way, sort of a... a you know, a single use uh, of a driverless car, absolutely. And if, and if I win the lottery, I'll buy a driverless uh, Tesla. <laughs> and the rest of us will just start saving up for the day when we can afford our own. Yes. Great. Well, that covers the questions I had. Are there any other aspects of the self-driving car that you find particularly fascinating? Well, I, to, to come back to the almost maybe the very first question is when. I, I use a three-part test of when a technology is going to be in the commercial marketplace. And the three parts are, number one, is it technologically feasible? Number two, is it economically affordable or viable? And number three, is it socially, politically acceptable? That is, and that includes sort of what will society want it and will the regulatory agency allow it? And, and I think it's that third hurdle will be the biggest one, and that's on the regulatory side. Because some companies, of course, and powerful interests will, will fight against it. But if the regulators allow autonomous vehicles, at least, for example, for out on the open interstates, then I, I'm quite sure that we will see versions of that within five years, that is, by 2020, and that we'll see fully autonomous vehicles being driven both on the highways and potentially in cities by 2025. The, the head of the Google 
driving, he spoke at TED last week, you know, or a week before. In, in yeah, Chris Ernst, I believe. And he said, and I think he said his son is 11 or 12 years old, and his goal is a world in which his son will not need a driver's license. <laughs> I think that's every parent's dream, right? Quite optimistic, but we'll see. We'll keep our fingers crossed for the sake of all the parents out there. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you. Bye, Glenn. Bye. Like, how cool would it be if we could go on a road trip and neither of us had to do the driving? Yeah. When I went on a road trip as a child, we had an actual TV that we brought into my neighbor's car and sat it in, like, the back of his pickup truck. Um, Not in the bed, but in the back seat. And we watched Jumanji, like, seven times, I think, on a trip down to the Florida Keys. But, of course, the driver could only listen to it, which is probably much more annoying than watching it seven times. So if he didn't have to drive, he could have turned around and watched it with us. And you wouldn't have to even pull over and look at the map. You wouldn't even need a map. You could blow your nose in the map. That's it for this episode of Futuropolis. If you want more, you can check us out at popsci.com or on Twitter at popsci. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Crowdwell. Thanks to Sophie Bushwick, who is our voice of the archives. And thanks also to Laura Mayer and Henry Malofsky at Panoply. Futuropolis is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Thanks for listening. See you next time in the future.